I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think we've got to put it as an option. We've got to let, let people potentially, you know, they might feel a bit sympathetic. They might be like, oh, you know what? We'll let Dave off the hook. You know, maybe it is Void. Void's not an option, all right? It is Monday, which means it's time for the Front 3 Weekend Review with me, Adam Bolt, with the one and only Lawrence McKenna. Guess who's on the streets? Uh, Dave O'Brien's here as always as well. Hello, hello, hello. So much to talk about in today's podcast. In part one, we'll be reviewing the FA Cup and Premier League action. In part two, we'll be tactically analysing El Clasico, while in part three, Chris Hennage, who is at St. James's Park tonight, will be joining us to talk Newcastle's promotion to the Premier League, confirmed tonight after their 4-1 win over Preston. First up, though, there's only one place to start, isn't there, Dave? It's the FA Cup semi-finals at Wembley. Mm. Painful place to start for me, but we have to start with Chelsea beating Spurs 4-2 on Saturday evening. Um, Conte's gamble paying off, essentially, in the end. You know, jaws were hitting the floor when the news uh, emerged that both Hazard and Costa weren't starting the game for Chelsea. I mean, after the fact, do you think this is now the story of his triumph in bringing on those players at a crucial point in the match when it was 2-2, essentially, to win it? Or is it the story of Pochettino's failure? You know, he got a lot of criticism for playing Hummings on at left wing back. Um, I mean, which narrative side are we sort of falling on here, Dave? I think it's a combination of both. I think playing Son at left wing back was a little bit silly considering his defensive output in that position. We saw Victor Mictimoses' um, foul that he conceded for the penalty was just very, very poor defending in a way. You know, the problem was dive, Pochettino though, had it? to dive. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a combination of a dive. Like it was a dive, but dive, it was yeah, because yeah. it kind of blocked. You know, it did block Victor Moses's way to goal. Whether that you could fall that into obstruction, or I don't know where that fit in the rule book. But there was no contact, and he did go over the man. But it kind of goes so, down to wait, what? Yeah, but I guess that brings up the question, doesn't it? Like, if he did dive, but it would have happened anyway, was he just <laughs> predicting the inevitable, or yeah. is that legally not a penalty? Because if he's not touching him. It's sort of like, you know, that thing where kids are like, not touching, can't get mad, not touching, can't get I think mad. It was a straight, it's like, well, I, I don't think it was. Him. I think technically it wasn't a penalty because he dived, but the decision by Son was so 
stupid that therefore everyone was like, "Wow, it's fair enough. It's a penalty, really, isn't it?" So it's sort of it's weird middle ground, really. No, I think I think it was I think it was a penalty. Um, it's a very poor decision from Son. There. The problem is you, you you know Pochettino kind of had to play Son. He's been on fire in the FA Cup, scored six goals, which is the joint most in the tournament this season, and it equates to what thirty two percent of Spurs' goals. So it's kind of one of these things where he does rotate the side in the cup competitions, but Son kind of deserved to start. But unfortunately, it was the wrong shape. It should have potentially been a four-two-three-one, playing a little bit narrow. I was wondering playing Ben with, Davis. Yeah, with it just it, seems to be a little bit silly. Even if you know uh, Davies didn't warm up, so there was talk. You know that he wasn't up for selection. Maybe you play Jan Vertonghen at left back. That shape has obviously been working in recent weeks, albeit against mm. lesser teams at White Hart Lane. Yeah, again, it's, it's going down to like the, the squad depth. You'd argue that Chelsea have, a, have a, had a similar problem. If you you know if you consider that Azard and Costa had started, it would have been the other way around, and they're bringing on the likes of. Um, Bashuai and obviously William who did very very well in the game but it's it's like a different quality Hazard was just or has been this season on a next level he's been on the level that he won the PFA player of the year in 2014-15 arguably should have won it this season as well um, but he just showed with his class it is finished for his, his goal and the awareness to slip it back to Matic arguably Matic you know should get a lot of credit for that goal but again Hazard plays that pass and it's a, it's a key part in the game what he was on for um, whatever it was, well, you know, 15 minutes or however long he was on the pitch, a short amount of time, but he made a massive impact and ultimately kind of shows Pochettino's lack of depth in his squad and attacking sense. And also, I don't know, with Pochettino, it seems like it's going a little bit wrong in these bigger games. Uh, like, he got it so right last season. It seems Mourinho's kind of done a job, job on him. Um, uh, Conte's done a job on it. It seems like the more pragmatic managers towards this back season are kind of getting results against this Tottenham side, which is a little bit worrying considering... If they want to win this Premier League title, they've got to be able to break down these sides and, and be more competitive. The press wasn't as aggressive as it usually is in these bigger games. Maybe Spurs have flipped to this more possession-based style to, you know, to beat these teams that sit a bit deeper. But then I've forgotten that you need to turn up and be very, very aggressive against the top teams. I think it is a, a very interesting one. It's interesting that you sort of talk about Pochino's sort of failing in these games against bigger sides against bigger name managers who maybe had his number. When Spurs are away from White Hart Lane, they do tend to struggle in these sorts of games. It's interesting, again, uh, to see them struggle at Wembley. I think it's the seventh FA Cup final, semi-final in a row they've lost as well. So historically, it's something, you know, that's, that's been around long before Pochettino. I think, as you said, though, the quality and the, the squad depth that Chelsea had ultimately made the difference. I mean, there was a lot of talk about how Spurs dominated the game and they did have the lion's share of possession. It was 63% to Chelsea's 37%. There were 13 shots for Spurs as well. But I think in terms of clear-cut, decisive chances, there wasn't much between the two teams. Chelsea had five shots on target. They scored four of them. And that was the difference in the end. You know, I think the, the, the difference between the squad, as we were saying, is being able to bring that quality off the bench uh, for Conte. You know, it's true as... Conte said after the game, it was kind of like a little dig almost. You know, he's only had nine months or so to sort of uh, have his say on this side. Pochettino's had three years, but I think, you know, Chelsea have had the resources there to to build this side up over a, a period of time. Spurs starting eleven right now, I'd say, is one of the best in the league. I think, you know, you've got Ali and Eriksson again, who were decisive in this game. They've really stepped up after a mixed start to the season. Uh, for me, you know, they're now alongside Harry Kane as as the club's two most important players, at least in an attacking sense. You know, with their contribution, Ali now has 20 goals this season. That's double his tally from last season. Uh, Eriksson as well has got 20 assists in all competitions, which is more than any other player in Europe's top five leagues. So I think if this summer, you know, we can add extra quality, a bit more know-how into this side, hopefully that will be the difference that takes us to the next level and makes, you know, it helps us bridge this 
gap almost between ourselves and these these sides like Chelsea. You know, it's not a gulf; it's a gap, which is something that I think can be can be bridged. I think it's going to be interesting to see which sort of players Spurs can attract in the summer, how much they're allowed to spend, how much Pochettino is you know, allowed to, to try and use to strengthen this squad with some of the financial restrictions that might be in place with the new stadium coming in. But, you know, there's there's no reason for me to believe why he won't be able to take the club forward next season um, and sort of make what, Wembley, decisions. mate. Wembley. Yeah, Wembley. Wembley. I'm not looking forward One to playing question. every game at Wembley in the league next season. Yeah, games. that's going to be a real issue, mate. It's going to be you, really, you're going to be great yeah. away from home. I was trying to be optimistic, Lawrence. Here. I was trying to give an optimistic, you know, look to the future, and you've you've sullied it. But um, yeah, it, we'll see. Well, um, we'll see so, how it goes. Mate, if your home grounds are Wembley, that's not sullied. That's, <laughs> oh. that's meant to be some sort of massive achievement. I think, but they could just go to Brentford, and everything will be all right. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's 100% been confirmed yet, has it, about Wembley? I think it's assumed. I think it was actually this Tuesday that they're supposed to confirm by. Um, Not after but, that I mean, game, but... You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. the thing is, you, know, you do sort of worry about that a little bit. I mean, it's the kind of thing where it's not really... like There's nothing in the manager's handbook, clearly. I mean, Slavan Bilic has had the same problem. There's nothing in the manager's handbook where you sort of go, uh, right, what happens when we move stadium and then it becomes uh, dreadfully unlucky? Well, I think that's... I mean, does, he, does he pee in all four, four corners of the ground? Does maybe. He, like, he needs he to do something drastic because I think what's been so important for Spurs this season is the home formula, to be unbeaten at home, um, to be dominating games and... and that's where the lion's share of our points have come from. Like I'm saying, the big games against the bigger sides, against the other top six teams, that's where we're winning our games. That's what's been the difference. So next season, to move to Wembley, to have that sort of almost intangible there, but which is clearly having an effect on the players. We've seen it in Champions League uh, as well this season. It's going to be it's going to be a big challenge, I think, for, for Mr. Pochettino to, uh, to overcome, essentially. Does he have the... Do you think this approach has a longevity? Do you think this approach of developing young players works to strengthen a bench in terms of when these young players get exposed to first-team football, they massively step up and their level massively goes up. You've seen what's happened to Kane, Ali, uh, Eric Dyer, uh, and arguably Christian Eriksen as well. But the problem with that approach is you can't really do that with players from the bench because you can't you know, give them the same amount of playing time in football. Maybe. Is that an issue that needs to be addressed or is that something that the Spurs Academy needs to be able to pushing players of a, you know, high enough quality through? Potentially, I think uh, it's a blend of it's a blend of approaches. I mean, before he got injured, you know, uh, and was ruled out for a season, Harry Winks was looking very impressive, Spurs, and that was coming off the bench, you know, making a contribution later on in games. He started a few just before he got his injury as well. You know, he started to make an impact in that respect. So I think Pochettino showing again this season that it's possible. It is a difficult one, but for me, I think. You know, we, we've got so many promising young players in the squad. I think Pochettino, you, you're going to trust him to bring those through. For me, it's more about using the resources we have in the transfer market more wisely. You know, I think Suzoko has been a failure. Jansen's been a failure. Even someone like Nkudu, who's had sort of bright patches when he's come on and had these these promising uh, moments, it's not really. Uh, <laughs> It's not really enough for us. We need something more decisive. We need more quality. You know, I've seen <laughs> reports linking us to to Douglas Costa from from Bayern Munich. Now, I'm not sure how realistic that is, but I think if we can sort of aim for those sort of players, uh, that's the sort of thing we need to bring in in order to make that difference, be it players coming off the bench or be it players in that starting eleven. That's also, I think, something where that comes down to the culture. And I think that's um, it's a really interesting side of it because, I mean, two seasons in a row now, they've finished second. And the fact is that if last season they'd have finished first, then people would, there, there's a, the likelihood that the mentality is, well, I don't mind sitting on the bench. 
if I then get a Premier League winner's medal or I've contributed towards a cause where it feels like we've gone all the way. It's also at the same time that I think a lot of people's criticism of Pochettino is their squad tends to burn out towards the end of the season. And that's why bench players are, are more likely to see more time. But if they're not seeing more time then, I guess the frustration sets in. So at, at the same time, I think the players probably have to balance it off that, you know, if you're at Spurs... Uh, the likelihood is you're already a very good player, but you're also not at a Barcelona or a mega club where they've built up in a different way. And so you're not in that guaranteed echelon of well, we're guaranteed to be finishing in the top. You know, I'm guaranteed to be, you know, going down in European folklore because, you know, those special nights or whatever. And that has to be something that's cultivated over time. That's not something Pochettino can do in, you know, two seasons or three seasons. I think he's he has managed the squad rotation very well, though. I think he... Uh, no, but, and, and that's, I'm not, I'm not criticising the squad rotation, no. but I'm also saying I think, you know, that, that's something that the squad then have to realise. And there is the famous phrase from Pochettino, players sign a contract to train, not to play. Um, and, you know, if that goes from top to bottom in the club, then you know, th- there's, there's clearly a culture there. Overall, I think... Yeah. It was a very disappointing defeat, especially when you know Spurs scored two fantastic goals and almost gave away the first two. Despite you know what we're talking about, the quality of Chelsea coming through in the end, I think overall there are more reasons to be optimistic than not. As you're saying, hopefully we're going to finish second again this season. Um, although we finished third last season, we're going to finish in, I think, a top four. Forgot about that. Sorry. Yeah. 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 I think we're going to finish. Yeah. I'm not going to retake that because it was like <laughs> finishing second, wasn't it? it despite yeah. what happened last season, uh, wild season, I think Spurs, uh, ahead of each campaign, weren't expected to finish in the top four. I think they've almost overachieved to a certain extent. I think next season uh, is going to be crucial in terms of this side winning silverware and proving what many people say about them, that they are the best team in England. You know, So like I'm saying, if we can add a bit more quality to what is already a very good team, Pochettino has much improved this side season on season. So I am very optimistic, but I think there comes a point where you need to... There needs to be proof, essentially, uh, in terms of trophies. We need to see the rewards for it, I think. Hopefully next season, in Pochettino's fourth season, um, all the pieces should be in place. It's also fantastic that you can say, I think, as a Spurs fan, in Pochettino's fourth season. Um, oh, very much. Yeah, I, 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 it's it's all relative, isn't it? I mean, look at a few years ago. Exactly. The sports base didn't seem to be enjoying their football. They were constantly, you know, I mean, the, the fact is that it, the, the offices where Spurs fans were were miserable places. Now, there's sort of like this, well, there's a very different mentality. When well, yeah, not only uh, are Spurs playing great football, but they are literally challenging for the title this season and last, despite what happened towards I mean, the end of that campaign. I mean, that's a little bit, yeah. Not but really they are. I don't think that's something people would have expected three, four years ago from Pochettino. And, you know, a cup run, getting close to the final, um, albeit a disappointing result. I think, you know, it was a good performance from Spurs. There was a sort of sense of being unlucky. Do you think he's right? Do you think he's right? Were they, what, what was the quote that he said about... Um, I know he, their... tried, he tried to sort of put a broader context and say, you know, if they'd have won, it's a, a massive triumph. Every time you lose, it's a huge disaster and all the post-mortems come out. I think there is the, the need to take a bit of a more perspective. That's what I mean, I mean the bit where he said about them being as big a club as, um, as Liverpool or... Well, I don't really understand that one, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get involved in that one, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he didn't say. I mean, it's bad English. It's listen, bad English. Chelsea are on for the double. They're going through to the final. Um, there, they're going to face Arsenal, Lawrence. Um, a massive win for them. 
um, somewhat of the underdogs going into this game against Manchester City. It was a massive win for Arsene Wenger and his side. Uh, the back three as well. Uh, looking somewhat shaky against Middlesbrough, looked more solid this time. And in the end, they're through to the FA Cup final. Do you think uh, if they do go on to win this competition, that's enough for Wenger this season? I mean, no, honestly, no, probably not. It, it, or at least it shouldn't be. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense as to why. Um, it, it's, it just feels ridiculous um, that they're in this situation. And uh, I think a lot of people will continue to make the same points at, at Arsenal. Um, and I think at the same time, people will contrast them now with Spurs, where it seems like a consistent optimism, a consistent stability. You know, there's a lot more. It seems like everything that Arsenal were trying to achieve, Spurs have sort of achieved more recently. And so there's a lot of contrast in London at the moment. Um, yeah, it's all about the timeline. I mean, you sort of, what I think what most Arsenal fans would probably say is, we didn't want it, we wouldn't want to be going into this game as underdogs. Um, it's great to win it, but it, it's not always a case of we'll win it however. I think Arsenal want to have a more consistent um, outlook and a consistent uh, manager and a consistent win ratio. They don't want to go to games thinking, are we going to lose this one? They want to go to games optimistic. And the fact, the fact is they did not go into games optimistic. And so it sort of mars the overall result. They are, just we're talking about our Spurs, maybe need to take a, a, a wider perspective of, you know, accepting being knocked out. I think Arsenal fans are taking the perspective that they'll take this. You know, this is a big win for them right now. They, they needed something like this to lift uh, the sense of gloom around the club. And in the end, Arsene Wenger vindicated for the way he approached this game. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, but City had City had a terrible game. I think at the same time, you got to. I think you've got to give Wenger a bit of credit. You know, switching to a system that has done Tottenham and Chelsea has done them very well this season. One and two in the Premier League, and it, and it works with Sanchez. It works with Ozil. It works with Olivier Giroud, who just wasn't in the side when you know when Arsenal were going through that bad run of form and really should have been. So it's getting the players there, but also playing Oxley Chamberlain. As a right wing back, not really a right wing back, more of a right winger. You know that's where he should play. He shouldn't play centrally. He's not good enough on the ball in in a mental state. He's not good enough at making decisions. What he's good at is beating people, dribbling past them, and crossing the ball into the box. Obviously, when you've got Olivier Giroud in there, and you think that that's one of Manchester City's weaknesses, it was a good move from Wenger to play the Ox out there. And obviously, you know, it came up with one of the goals. But I thought Wenger did well, and, and you know, Ramsey, Zaka in central midfield in this system works quite nicely because you know the creative. Um, hub is ahead of them in Ozil, in Sanchez. There's not, you know, they have to do the worker roles, which both of the players are workers. They're not Santi Cazorla. They're not going to unlock a defence. They can sit deep. They can work hard and cover their centre, their three centre-backs behind them. So for me, it worked really well. Rob Holding uh, put in a decent display as well. So I think it's kind of going positive for Arsenal. Again, it's it's a proactive change from Wenger. And I'm, I'm quite happy that he's done that. And I'm quite happy that he's taken tactical trends in the league and applied it to his own team. And it, and it suits Arsenal. I think credit to, credit to Wenger, and again, if they win the FA Cup, yes, it's a massive failing in the league again. Yes, it's a massive failing in Europe. And maybe the FA Cup will once again save him and get him another contract. Mm, credit to Wenger for copying other managers. I'm being pedantic, but still, uh, like you say. Well, it's a little bit more than just sort of going, <laughs> you see what they're doing? Yeah, do yeah, that. Let's do right? the same, boys. Yeah. Um, it will be interesting to see if, you know, uh, once again this season, uh, Arsenal win the FA Cup and sort of scrape into the top four. I'm sort of thinking in the back of their mind they might, still do you know it'd be interesting to see if that does satisfy the fans and we, we do see another contract for Wenger on the flip side though Dave talking about Guardiola it's his worst season now as a manager it's the first time he's going to finish a campaign without silverware um, I mean we've spoken about 
how this summer, you know, with a reported two hundred million pounds to spend, you know, he's going to need to spend every penny of it by the looks of it. But in evaluating this season, with that final chance for a trophy gone, he is a failure, even if they do finish in the top four. Surely, I think it's, it's a work in progress. I think you can't again because we're so short term in the Premier League and we're we're geared on solving solutions through signing players and not coaching football. I think that's one of these things. Obviously, Guardiola. Is going to get slated by the media. Is going to get slated. Oh, you know, we can only do it with the best teams. Can only do it with the best players, which is just a rubbish. Firstly, and secondly, it's going to take a little bit more time. That the city officials knew Guardiola was coming. They they made it their aim to sign Pep Guardiola for a long time. Since they signed the the backroom of Barcelona, that was their aim. The signings haven't reflected the style of football they want to go. The players that they've got at that club now doesn't really work. You know, it goes from front to back. We've already spoke about the fullbacks. Um, you could look at someone like having Silva and De Bruyne in the same side. Gives Guardiola a problem. He should go with one or, one or the other. Playing both of them in the side, you know, it's it's playing one of them out of position. We saw it again with De Bruyne playing wide right. I don't know why he's playing De Bruyne wide right. When Sterling's been fantastic this season when he's played there, but also it's not to De Bruyne's strength. He did play this 3-8 system that worked, but then tactically... Um, their defensive midfielder be Fernandinho while Yaya Torre can't defend everything by himself. He's not Casemiro. So I think it's one of these things where Guardiola's done some really good things, done some interesting things. He needs to go back to basics at Barcelona, which was stretching the pitch horizontally in that final third. Pedro and uh, Villa basically standing on the touchline, opening up space for their central midfielders, opening up their space for their false nine, and also making the fullbacks overlap, not underlap. I think that's a big, big thing that he, he's got to go back Yes, he's made massive tactical strides um, from previous decisions. At the moment, he's in a phase now where his ideology is going, you know, it's blinding him of the this football decisions that he needs to make. He tried to be a little bit more pragmatic in that second half, didn't work at all. It's one of these things where Pep needs to be Pep, needs to be very, very intense, needs to stretch the play, needs to press. All these things at Manchester City aren't quite there right now, whether it is a massive overhaul, whether it is bringing some young players through from the academy that have been trained in this style of football. There's some big decisions that need to be made at that football club. And unfortunately, it's not really just Guardiola's fault. I think Guardiola takes some of it with his decisions, but it goes down to the board. It goes down to not having this vision aligned altogether. And I think that's a problem for Manchester City, but they will be they will be very, very competitive next season, depending on what they do. With someone like Gabriel Jesus as well, who had a really unfortunate injury because he'd, he'd pushed Aguero out Aguero of that team. He was absolutely flying. City's front three was flying. It looked so fluid. It looked like they're... They had that link between their midfield and their attack at a false nine. And Jesus, so it's one of these things where, you know, you, you change that moment. Jesus doesn't get injured. City are in a different position. They'll probably be second in the Premier League. They could still be in the Champions oh, League. It was There's a sliding doors moment, of... you might say. For, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say so, definitely. <laughs> um, interesting, you know, as we were saying about expectations, that perhaps they've fallen below those, I think, you know, even the top four now is is something that's questionable. It remains to be seen whether they're actually going to maintain their place there. Um, I need to thank Stephen Housen for uh, finding and retweeting one of my uh, musings from January 2016 that Pep Guardiola was going to walk the league when he arrived at Manchester City. Been getting abuse all day. Uh, my mentions have been full of abuse. So, Housen, thank you very much for that. How do you think that happens? What? Like, do you, how do you think Housen remembered that? Or he's typed in. He's just typed in Guardiola win Premier League or something like that. And because he follows, I've popped up at the top. You know, yeah, yeah. It was, I wasn't the only one. But, uh, I reckon he's got a file on all of us. So you, you know, yeah, probably be careful. I don't have a great track record with uh, predictions. <laughs> yeah, it's it fair to say, but we'll come on to that. We will come on to that. Um, before we finish on Arsenal, um, there's been some news today, Dave. Interestingly enough, just as you're saying, this system might be getting the best out of Olivier Giroud. Sky reporting that Marseille 
are going to do everything they can essentially to sign the Frenchman from Arsenal this summer, wanting to pay up to £20 million, which is uh, the sort of offer that you think will tempt uh, the club to sell. Mm, I think it'd be a good move for Marseille. I think it'd be a good move for Dimitri Payet. It'd be a good move for Rudy Garcia. It makes sense. It really does make sense. It makes, makes sense for Arsenal. But would I sell him if I was Arsene Wenger? I don't, I don't think I would. I think I'd keep him. I think Olivier Giroud is, is a little bit underrated now because he gets slanted so much from missing chances that he's he's, he's just become underrated now in the Premier League in terms of his assists, his goal stats since he joined there. Very, very, very competitive with the top, top players. I think assist-wise, only Wayne Rooney is, is the only player as a natural striker that's got more assists than Olivier Giroud. He contributes to the attack. He is a focal point. He kind of, It's what Arsenal kind of need through the middle. So... I don't know what I, I'd probably keep him. To be quite honest, I'd keep him. I'd, I'd you know, I'd, I would have made the financial decision early doors. If you're signing someone, you know, they, they bought him when they was 26. You're gonna have him until left 32. You know, you've got that depreciation as well. And if an offer comes in, I'd turn it down. But maybe that might be the right thing for Arsenal to do and you know, go big on someone like Icardi or someone like uh, Belotti. I, I don't know. It's Arsenal just seems like a bit of a mess at the moment. Mm, depends who they all can bring over in. across the, the world. It does depend on who they could bring in in his place. Essentially, as you say there he is uh, a very good player I think he's a great option as well we're talking about the depth um, or lack thereof for Spurs I think having someone like Giroud on your bench someone who can sort of come on and change the game and, and give you different sort of approaches is uh, a very valuable thing in the Premier League so it'd be interesting to see if they are tempted to take that offer um, let's shift gears to the Premier League we've got to talk bottom of the table because it's been a very exciting weekend uh, in the relegation battle let's start Lawrence with Crystal Palace uh, visiting Anfield, coming away with a 2-1 win now, pulling themselves out of trouble, essentially. <clears throat> Talk of a top-half finish now, potentially, for Big Sam. Uh, Christian Benteke, though, returning to haunt his former club, keeping alive the narrative as well that Liverpool are really rubbish against teams they shouldn't be rubbish against, Lawrence. I think uh, quite a few sides have been rubbish against Big Sam this season, haven't they? A few sides have tripped up. Oh, especially in recent weeks. Uh, Arsenal, Chelsea, and now Liverpool. Uh, just some of the scalps that he's taken since uh, since coming to the club. What I do find quite interesting is Big Sam has, when they're not mathematically out of um, trouble, declared that Crystal Palace are out of trouble. But, I mean... You know, I mean, it's, it's moving in the right direction, you know, based on, based on recent form. I did. I, I mean, what you said in the last... Um, what you, were, what you were saying during the analysis of um, Spurs and Chelsea also struck me because, you know, you said Spurs have um, dominated possession, dominated quite a few of the stats. They haven't done enough with it. And Big Sam afterwards seemed very pointed in his comments of, well, they've dominated the possession and, um, you know, they've, it's what we've done with the ball, with our possession. That's the thing. Did he, did he out-tactic? Uh, Jurgen Klopp, he seemed to suggest as much after the game, saying, you know, rather humbly that his team were tactically exceptional. They targeted Liverpool's weaknesses, specifically their weakness on corners, which in the end was was where the winner came from. Yeah, although I don't think that Crystal Palace at the back were anything particularly exceptional, but that's why they've, that's because they've lacked Sacco, who's been um, a stalwart for them since playing a couple of games. You'd like to see um, him back, I, I'm assuming, next season, despite his celebration. Uh, I imagine winner, he's probably... Well. I, mean, I mean, I imagine he's probably sort of uh, sold himself uh, down the river there by doing that celebration with Benteke. I mean, he sort of says it's not to not to upset Liverpool fans anyway. I don't really understand what, um, what he sort of means by that because I think, you know... I mean, what I find sort of difficult about that is not some... I understand if he probably has a problem with Klopp or 
the team or any of the backroom staff or anyone. Um, what I don't think he ever had a problem with, I think a, a fan base that always showed him a lot of support were the Liverpool supporters when he was accused of um, doping, when he was all those ac- accusations and stuff. They, they stuck on his side. And I think a lot of people at Anfield and who were watching felt a bit let down by that because a lot of people, including myself, sort of said, you know, I think he's a he's a good player. Um, seems like a lovely guy, and we hope that he gets back soon. Um, and it's not really the fans' responsibility what what Jurgen Klopp has made the decision of, and I think a lot of people have expressed that. So I think a lot of the fans felt very let down by him, um, and it, it almost shows a kind of um, an ignorance to what those people did or were trying to say in that time to do something like that so close to the crowd. And then not understand why those people would be upset about it. Are you sweating? He did a silly handshake, by the way, with uh, with Christian Benteke, who, by the way, has every right because Christian Benteke is <laughs> absolute dog shit in the time he was at Liverpool. Um, do you feel he uh, has every right to do that? Underutilized, that sort of oh, he's allowed. Uh, I think I think underutilized, or it was, you know, I mean, I, I was a big I was a big advocate for, for Christian. I mean, I was a big advocate for Christian Benteke at the time. I said I felt very sorry. I didn't feel like Liverpool did make the most of him tactically but then I I, I don't I mean you know if, if Klopp doesn't want to play that way it's not really Benteke's fault and it's not really Klopp's fault that he doesn't want to play with Benteke he took over a squad and he so, and he's changed what he wants to do if he doesn't feel like he can make the most of him doesn't feel like he can motivate the player then tell him he can move on and I think um, you know if, if Palace were the only team that Benteke could attract at that time then that's not really Klopp's um, responsibility to the player um, I think it's maybe Liverpool's responsibility but it's not really Klopp's and I understand why Ben Teke celebrating the way he did because Liverpool fans uh, around Anfield weren't particularly supportive um, of, of him during his time at Anfield Lawrence, how... I, to the contrary of what I was by the way okay. so you know <laughs> uh, how real do you think now is the uh, the possibility of falling out of the top four I mean City and United are obviously behind Liverpool uh they're within two points and three points respectively, but they've got two games in hand each. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of those games in hand is going to be, although Liverpool play um, the same game this week, uh, it, it is obviously one of those games in hand, obviously against each other. So they can either draw or take points. So, I mean, ideally for Liverpool in that situation, I think Man City would either win or draw. Um United then have a run of games where they go away to Arsenal. Uh, they are, uh, sorry, yeah, they're away to Arsenal, away to Spurs um, and at home to Palace. So there are some tricky games in there for United as well. I think a lot of fans, uh, you know, it's probably not worth uh, saying that Liverpool will beat both teams. I think they'll probably only beat one of those two sides into the top four and Liverpool will probably end up finishing fourth if they do manage to get there. But then Liverpool have a, a tricky run uh, because they're playing a lot of sides who are, below the top six. So. Mm, I find that difficult at the moment, aren't they? Um, Dave, big Tricky, sound. tricky. Tricky, tricky. Uh, but it is frustrating. It makes it hard to fucking uh, praise Big Sam when he Why? talks in the way that he does post-game because he, comes, he just comes across as... man, Lawrence. He just comes across as so sort of self-satisfied and arrogant that it's sort of... He doesn't let, know, he doesn't let the, the football do the talking, essentially. He doesn't let the results do the talking. He likes to just make sure everyone got it. It was his idea. But it's also it's it is also it sort of misses. I mean, I understand it's about the results and it's about winning or whatever. But the fact is that you know, if 
you you can't just say well we won and it's however you win that is you know uh, then Manchester United would have kept Louis van Gaal or etc etc Hundred percent. You look at his uh, his last two months at Crystal Palace. He's won seventy five percent of his games. Only had forty four percent possession. Scored fourteen goals, six wins, and four clean sheets. If there's not a tactical genius in the Premier League that isn't Sam Allardyce, I don't know who is. And I think you know he caught Liverpool out in the ways that are so easy to beat Liverpool. I think this is the problem with Jurgen Klopp at the moment. They're they're so open to the counter attack. They're terrible at tracking runners from from midfield, and all these problems that Liverpool have had. This season, they just seem to emerge again and again and again and again. And it just seems like one of these moments that Jurgen Klopp needs to change something, whether it is, um, you know, adapting his style slightly. It is, it, it's moving moving on from, you know, certain players. And I really think at centre-half, they've, they've got to start making a decision here and they've got to start, you know, in the summer, it's going to be absolutely vital that they buy some more centre-backs because at the moment, just not good enough. Unfortunately, that's it. They're just not good enough. They're not good enough for Liverpool Football Club. You could argue as well, um, you know, someone like Nathaniel Klein isn't at the right standard, isn't at the standard of Liverpool where Liverpool want to be. And I think there's just question marks that Jurgen Klopp needs to address in the trans. I don't think it's a coaching thing anymore. I think it's actually transfer market that needs to deal with this. He's had enough time now to work with some of these players. But credit to Big Sam. Big Sam's had a wonderful spell at Palace and they're doing everything right. I think a lot of people would also point to the fact that Liverpool, uh, again, were bullied by another side. Um, physically in a number of areas on the pitch and whilst they do lack a number of key figures you should have a um, a deep enough squad at this point especially if you want to play the way that Jurgen Klopp wants to play so either he has to change the way he wants to play because you can't push a squad like this um, or you know you have to look at that bench and say well it was a very very young bench and so it left Liverpool virtually zero options apart from Alberto Moreno and maybe Marco Grugge um, at, at, you know, at the same time, Liverpool would also say that they probably wanted a penalty from that Coutinho chance. So, you know, I mean, a draw is much better than a loss. It's still a point, isn't it? Elsewhere at the bottom of the table. Uh, very exciting. Hull uh, beating Watford 2-0. They had more balls, uh, Troy Deedy said, uh, eloquently put it, essentially. Um, despite being down to 10 men for over an hour, Lawrence, they mm-hmm. prevailed and they're still above the relegation zone. Well, they out-tacticked. Uh, they out-tacticked Watford, didn't they? Um, oh, but then, if you look, but then also if you look at the the table, Watford are uh, in a safe position as a whole now. But um, they they obviously sit precariously just over the the relegation zone. Slightly less safe. Great, say, yeah. The great counter-attacking football, um, and again, sort of showing the, the pragmatism of a young manager coming into the league um, and using his resources well. And I think that's where the contrast of maybe someone like Liverpool. And Jurgen Klopp, I think Jurgen Klopp, uh, you know, his, his initial motivation was great at Liverpool. I think you can see the same going on with Hull because the players are working exceptionally hard hmm. to keep uh, Hull City up. That's and, th- you know, that, that comes across in the counter-attacking. That's the thing, Dave. Is this just a team who had more to play for here? Watford potentially on the beach. You know, there's all this talk of uh, a lingering feud between the manager and, and Troy Deeney, obviously. They've only won three in the last nine now. Is this just the season's essentially over for them? The manager's potentially off at the end of the season. They've got nothing to, to play for, essentially? <laughs> I think it's kind of the, the issue with the owners um, and how they run the, you know, the Granada, Udinese and Watford. 
know, it's been a really weird swing between, uh, you know, the resource going to Watford at the moment when it was, it's been in Udinese for the past 10 seasons. And I think it's the problem of having and allowing ownership of multiple clubs from one single, uh, you know, company or one family, which is, is an issue that UEFA needs to address or FIFA needs to address. But again, it's, yeah, Watford, that they're done. You know, Niang had a little spell where he was carrying Watford for a few games, but now they're back to, you know, they're back to mid-table, square one again. So again, it's going to be another building summer. There's going to be a load of signings. There's just no, not not fluidity, but there's no like long-term vision, it doesn't seem, at Watford about, you know, they're bringing all these players in, these players then go, then the new manager comes in, then he brings another, his, his players in, and it's this continued merry-go-round of staying in the Premier League. It just seems like there's no progress at that club and there's no aim to, to get to where they want to get, which is obviously Champions League football. That's what the owners have always said about Udinese, where they were in the Champions League for a you know a brief spell. It's similar to what, what Watford want to be that competitive, but it just seems like their plan is so insular and so short-term, whereas it should be, if they want to do it right, should be long-term. Mm. Stoke, another team potentially on the beach. Their form continues to, uh, to be very patchy. Swansea getting a 2-0 win over Mark Hughes' side. A vital win for them as well in their survival hopes. Uh, do you think maybe Paul Clement was somewhat lucky in this one, Dave? I mean, it was their first win in six, a vital three points. But uh, the manager's taken off Fernando Lorente, obviously opened the scoring. Uh, later seeing Stoke miss a penalty. You know, if that had gone in, it could have been very different for Paul Clement. Yeah, I think it's all about luck. And I think Swansea, you know, probably didn't get any luck towards the start of the season when our pal was managing them. So they're getting a bit now, but I think, you know, the key connection there is uh, obviously Gilfie Sigurdsson and Fernando Lorente. He's now, Sigurdsson's now assisted five of Lorente's goals, which is the most of any combination in the Premier League. So they've got something that works, set pieces again, that, you know, that are helping Swansea out. But again, I think it's, it, they've got to give him time. Whether they get relegated or not, uh, Paul Clement deserves a season as Swansea. Um, you know, maybe even three seasons. He's done the right thing in his career. He's worked under some great managers, obviously Carlo Ancelotti. But it is this big thing now where they need to think long-term Swansea and even if they get relegated, keeping their manager. Swansea away at Old Trafford next as well, Dave. Um, I mean, that's got a point written all over it, surely. But it's going to be a straight shootout now, it looks like, between Hull and between Swansea. Who are you back in to stay up? Hull, I think. I think they've shown enough so far. Mm. Lawrence, are you on the same page there? Yeah, just because of the run they have as well. I think, yeah, it's hard to look past Hull at this point. I'd like to see Marco Silva in the Premier League for another season. I think uh, Swansea will be back, I think, um, if they do go down. I'd be more worried about uh, Hull if they if they were to be relegated. Um, but finally, this weekend, uh, we've got to talk about the tragic situation of Manchester United, Dave. Um, very, <laughs> very saddened to learn that apparently Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Marcos Rojo have, have passed away. That's the only explanation, surely, for those shirts with the, the names on the back. It couldn't just be injuries that's uh, in support of, could it? I think it's just a big ruse. It's for the Manchester derby. They're just appearing to be injured and then wham, Zlatan Rojo will be fit. As Ander Herrera said, Marcos <laughs> Rojo two weeks. is the best, if the best centre-back in world football. <laughs> I was saying just because uh, it was quite a funny comment from Ander Herrera. Um, he's obviously never watched Benucci or Chiellini. It's true. Um, Zlatan, tragically, uh, out for the rest of the season, it looks like. Nothing has been confirmed yet. Something confirmed yet, As you said, but it looks rumors. like, you know, potentially he could be out for up to eight, nine months. Adam, it's all, it's all rumours. It's all rumours. Dave, are I you mean... saying that? Are you saying that you've seen someone recover from an ACL injury? <laughs> Lawrence, well, is it an ACL? Is, right? I don't know. The thing, it's not not just an ACL injury; it's an MCL injury as well. So he's not just done the anterior crucement, but he's done the other one as well. So maybe it's if you do both of them, 
you're only actually out for two weeks, which I think is actually, you know, we. Uh, I'm not a doctor, but you're not a doctor. Ackle <laughs> and muckle, you're right. The thing is, Dave, now this obviously brings into question uh, a certain little bet that we had going that wasn't looking too I good for me. Um, Zlatan Ibrahimovic to score 20 league goals this season. Uh, I listened back to the previous podcast because I wanted to sort of see what the actual rules were. Yeah, and we said if Zlatan tears his ACL, his MCL at the same time, <sighs> Really? Uh, playing for Manchester United against Anderlecht in the Europa League. It was very specific. It was bang The game on. is void. It was weird. Yeah, I, I don't know how I guessed that Probably should have put some in the Europa League that far. Weird. Um, strangely enough, we only specified that if it was 20 goals, the bet would be null and void. Uh, if it was over 20 goals, I would lose the bet. And if it was under, you would be losing the bet. And you would be succumbing to the punishment of dyeing your hair bleach blonde, messy blonde. I believe we uh, specified. So what do we do now, Dave? I mean, are you dying your hair blonde? Season and Zlatan could still score some goals. So is that what you're... Are you basically saying the bet's still alive? The bet's no, not no, void? No, no, I think, I think it might like have that. been void, actually. I can't no. remember. Is it void? How is it, it just void? It got voided, didn't it? It was like one of those... You know those T's and C's <laughs> things where you're like... You put a bet on. I someone to like, win a game and, and someone gets injured and it bet void. Sorry, no, Lawrence, just... I mean, come on, you're all slightly impartial here what do you think is the the correct resolution I mean, this situation i mean i'm not impartial in that i want to see one of you go blonde <laughs> well, yeah, um, well, i mean surely dave though the bet stands it's very simple zlatan will not score more than 20 league goals this season therefore dave dyes his hair bleach blonde messy blonde it is a tricky one because i mean part of adam's argument was that zlatan was getting old and part of getting old is Becoming prone I to it. I just knew it. I just knew part, it. Of, part of his cracking analysis on football, similar to the Guardiola winning the league show. He's old. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a great track record for prediction. This one has come yeah. true, Dave. I just knew something like this would happen. I mean, it's tricky. Do we it's tri- I mean, it's a tricky one. I mean, do we go if, void? Do we go Dave goes blonde? Do we double I think or nothing? it must what? go. It must go to a public vote. That's the only way it can go, really. Um, the fact is, both of you have entered into what is a legally binding... <laughs> Verbal I, agreement. I didn't find any yeah. documents, um, or, you know, there was no lawyers involved. Or... I believe there's footage of us on TFR shaking hands, which is uh, <sighs> visual. That's, I mean, that's as good as... I mean, that's as good as a sporting contract. In, it yeah, is indeed. The... Shaking no. hands, the most ancient uh, form of contract in many ways. Uh, Dave, I Do think... you go double or quits? This is the thing. I think, you know, we could pretend... What's double or quits, though? Does that mean you have to die something else? Blonde? I mean, is that, that could be up for... Recover from his injury right. within the next six months or not. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm quite happy to uh, to just stick to this bet as it stands because I'm winning as it stands. Um, but uh, I think maybe we could put it open to the audience, Dave. You know, are you happy to do that yourself? You know, the, the options being Dave... Dyes his hair blonde, he's lost. Void, as in the bet's over, you know, this is an unforeseen circumstance that renders any agreement uh, cancelled. Yeah, I, I or think that's the only option. The third option. No, 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 no. You know, no, 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 the no, third sorry, option sorry, is no, the no, bet. Sorry, there's, there's no way. No, no, but no, that's great. I think that should be an option. Yeah, no, no, I think that should be an option for the audience. But maybe the third one, the third one is, you know, the the bet goes to another level. You know, we put a bet on something next season, maybe involving Zlatan, maybe involving something else. Same sort of thing. The only option is that the bet goes to another level. When you say another level, is that uh, I wasn't too happy about potentially having to dye my hair bleach blonde? Do I have to do more than that, or does it just stay at that same forfeit? Yeah, because the problem is the fact is that in um, what maybe a year's time, dyeing your hair blonde will not be a thing anymore. So, you know, it, you're going to look really silly in a year and a bit 
Whereas right now it'll be a bit more like, oh, you've sort of just but missed the like trend. This has been rumbling bit. on for nine months already. You know, we need a resolution, be it void or be it Dave going blonde, preferably the latter, Dave going blonde. So, guys, I'm going to put it on a vote. Um, I'll put it on a vote on Tuesday on the Front Free Twitter. Do go and check it out. Go and follow it. If you've got any suggestions, tweet us. Let us know how you think uh, is the best way to get this bet resolved. Unless, by some miracles, Latin comes back before the end of the season, bangs in three more goals. Thursday. You know, then... Patrick. <laughs> Well, we'll see. We'll see. But it's looking unlikely at the moment. But regardless, Dave, without Zlatan against Burnley at the weekend, talk that potentially, even without their talismanic main man, they looked a better side. They looked a more fluid side. I think the, the position rotation, especially in the front three, was a lot better. It caused Burnley a lot of trouble. They couldn't deal with the, the fluidity of Wayne Rooney and Martial, who kept on switching positions at will in a way. And, and it's one of these things when you do withdraw a striker to a wide position and you play these weaker sides, they aren't as good as um, you know the likes of Real Madrid, Barcelona and so forth at dealing with this rotation of positions and Burnley just couldn't deal with that and unfortunately that was that was one of the killers for Burnley but also the counter-attack is a lot faster without Zlatan Ibrahimovic. It's a, not a criticism of Zlatan, it's what Zlatan is. He's a target man. He's not going to be able to you know, break uh, 88 yards across the pitch or whatever, you know, however far Martial carried the ball and then played a pass and, and then finished it off. It's just not Zlatan's game. So it's an interesting one, but they did look a lot better. They really did. It looked a lot more fluid. Uh, the last few weeks, Zlatan hasn't looked great. He's missed a number of pretty big opportunities. So it kind of, it did work out for United. I think playing someone like Anthony Martial or Marcus Rashford through the middle in these coming weeks is going to be a fantastic proposition because it's going to be a different United. It's going to catch some teams out. You know, it's different playing against United with Latam than United with Rashford or Martial as a striker. So, quite happy about that. I thought there were some good performances. Paul Popper played very well, but then potentially pulled up at the end of the game with a hamstring injury. So, it's going to be tight. Obviously, wow, him, and, flies at Manchester United right now. him and Bay have played, what, 500 minutes? 540 minutes in the last 14 days of football, which is pretty crazy. So... It, it is going to be an interesting end to the season for United and the you know the race to win the Europa League, the, the race for the top four. United are in the in the right space right now, but it is avoiding those injuries. That is the Premier League action reviewed. Let's move on to part two, tactically analysing El Clasico. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Right, it's time for part two. Some tactical analysis of a little game 
I believe is called El Clasico. Dave, uh, Real Madrid vs Barcelona ended 3-2. One of the most entertaining El Clasicos in recent years. Uh, Barcelona, of course, the victors in the end. The victory sending them top of the table. Keeping their title hopes alive, of course. But it was all about one man. Lionel Messi scored two pretty spectacular goals. Had a spectacular celebration to go with it. But tactically, it was interesting in the first half. He was kept relatively quiet, wasn't he? Mainly by getting kicked about. I'd say so. I think Casemiro did a fantastic job on him. You know, Casemiro is a bit of a hate figure on uh, football Twitter at the moment because of his fouling. And I think it tactically it's, it's very, very important to Zinedine Zidane's approach. He has the flair in um, Cruz and Modric, but he needs that sort of bite in, in defensive midfield. And what Casemiro did in that first half was he pretty much man Martley and Messi. He got booked for a tactical foul. He committed two fouls after that. And people were calling for a red card. For me, that's, you know, it's a bit, that would be a bit too harsh. I mean, that is Casemiro's role in the side, but he was perfect in terms of just stopping Messi. He was stopping him in the deep areas. And, where you want to stop Messi when before he gets on these little runs is, is, is sort of around that centre circle. Because if he beats a few players, like we've seen time and time again in, in European football or in you know in, in competitions with Argentina, he's just full in flow. And I thought it was a perfect job for Casemiro in that first half to pretty much just foul Lionel Messi. That was his job on the pitch. And, and again, staying on the pitch was impressive. And Zidane did change it to that second half move. Modric, two defensive midfield to deal with Lionel Messi. But I think, unfortunately for Zidane, the sending off of Sergio Ramos kind of killed that tactic and it really freed up Messi. We saw for the goal, um, Messi coming from deep, the crucial winner, the, the 500th goal of Messi's career, the goal that put him clear of the Clasico in the Liga in terms of the goal scoring charts, was there was no tracking of his run. And Kovacic, who'd just come on the pitch, I think on around 60-odd minutes, replacing Casemiro, but going to defensive midfield, could be for, to blame there, you know, not keeping up with Lionel Messi. You could argue that if he tracks that run, could potentially block that, block that cross at the edge, or the pullback at the edge of the box. But what a finish from Lionel Messi. Classic Lionel Messi, both his goals. The first one taking the ball at such pace, bringing it under, dribbling past his opponent and then side phoning it home. But the, it was the other, the other goal as well. It's another classic Lionel Messi. First time on the left foot, um, curled into the corner. It's similar to what Dybala did uh, for Juventus against Barcelona. But Messi's been doing it for his whole career. And it was a brilliant performance from Messi. And I love the the end of the celebrations. They're getting booked for taking a shot. It was just, you know, to cap it all off was fantastic. It was one hell of a celebration. To hold up your shot of that to the Madrid fans and say, listen, lads, uh, it was me. It was me. It's, it's quite something. <laughs> As did it, lads. What did you make of uh, of the way Zidane tried to change the game there? Because, I mean, it's really interesting that, you know, as you're saying, Casemiro having to come off essentially to, for fear of him getting a red. Ramos maybe doing less of an effective job than, than Casemiro uh, in trying to take Messi down. Obviously, a rash challenge, deserved red card for him. But Zidane bringing on Rodriguez as well ultimately got them back level. I think it was a, it was a cracking change from Zidane. And again, you know, the more that I watch this Real side, the more that you know you start to understand what Zidane's trying to do with this team. It's very, very impressive the pressing centrally from central midfield that uh, puts Real Madrid on the front foot in certain phases. The patience they have in sitting back, but this change to bring off Benzema, who had a very good game, linked up the play very well. There were a number of moments where he was drifting out wide. Arguably, you could say that he was playing on the right wing more than a striker with Ronaldo going into that number nine um, spot. But what was so impressive with James was he gave Real Madrid a bit of pace on the counter-attack. And with that, um, you know, Barcelona's man advantage, it helped out because one, uh, James Rodriguez entered the midfield battle. So again, it was 3v3 in central midfield. But he also gave that sort of acceleration in the penalty area that's been catching Barcelona out this season, those sort of late runs into the box. Uh, you know, the, the, the midfield tracking is, is pretty poor um, from Barcelona. So it was a real in interesting substitution. Ultimately grabbed a very, very important goal. And if it wasn't for Real Madrid chucking loads of men forward, even though they didn't need to win the game, this arguably should have been the change that won Zinedine Zidane the point and ultimately the league. I mean, do you think 
the attacking approach in those latter stages cost Real Madrid because obviously that final play of the game, uh, 6-3-3, I think it was, in the Madrid half, in the dying seconds, it shouldn't really have happened when Madrid only needed a, a draw ultimately to almost secure the league title. No, it's an interesting one. It really is. It's, it kind of, kind of goes down to them. Yes, pushing too, pushing too many numbers, numbers forward. But it kind of shows as well, with Casemiro not on the pitch, centrally they're quite weak and they don't they can't win these tackles. You see Sergio Roberto, what burst past two challenges that came in that completely opened up the situation. What it was a... Um, I think Real may, or Barca, sorry, would have had three players forward. And because of this great run from Sergio Roberto, who had a pretty decent game, wasn't doing the... Um, Alves style overlaps but that moment where he burst past those two players was fantastic and created that situation that opened up the space for Barcelona to grab that absolutely crucial goal but again it goes back to Real only having one dedicated holding midfielder Kovacic has come in but he's not a ball winner he's not a tackler he's not a fowler he isn't Casemiro so maybe in the summer if Real Madrid do win back-to-back Champions Leagues to win the triple to win three in a row they need to get another um solid defensive midfielder that can come in for Casemiro, you know, either if he's picked up a yellow card or when he's he's not fit, to make those tackles. In that moment, Casemiro would have brought him down. Casemiro would have just mm. taken that, taken the yellow card, maybe been sent off, but ultimately would have got the draw for Real Madrid. And it was quite interesting to see him burst past and explode and start that move up. A player that's taken a bit of stick this season in Sergio Roberto. Mm. I mean, uh, you're talking there about triple-A Coronas for, for Real Madrid in the Champions League. In terms of the league, though, despite this result, it is still in Real Madrid's hands. Um, they've got a game in hand now over Barcelona. They're level on points. If they do indeed win their final six games, the title will be theirs. Who are you backing, Dave? I think it's got to be Real. I think Real um, are going to win the double. I think they are. They're so patient. They're, they've got such a good squad. Their B team is unbelievable. Their B team would probably come fourth in La Liga behind Atletico and Barca. So I just think they've got some great strength and depth around every position, apart from Casemiro's position. So I think they've they've kind of got it locked down. And with uh, the, the goals that they've got off the bench, the you know Asensio coming on, twenty years old, and was unbelievable. His pace, his directness, his ability to uh, find crosses at the right moments was was absolutely incredible. I think they've got that with Hammers coming off the bench. They've got such great strength. Um, to make massive impacts on the game. Whereas if you look at that Barca bench, there's nothing there. Without Neymar in the first team, without bringing someone like Paco on, what they brought on Andre Gomez, who had a pretty decent game, to be fair, to Andre Gomez, who's been massively you know, slanted this season at Barca. I thought he did well, defended quite well, obviously played the ball to Jordi Alba, um, who then obviously played the pass to Messi to score the goal. So I think it, it's all about the squad depth. And, and with Barcelona, like sort of Lawrence and, and Kristen mentioned before, it's going away from using these players that have come through the Barca Academy and trying to sign players... Um, away, maybe they need to go back to try and develop a few more players that can bring on and that can that know how to play this Barcelona way and can make an impact in these big games. For me, it's all over. Real Madrid, La Liga champions. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for part three. Chris Hennage joining us now from outside St. James's Park. Chris, Newcastle clinching promotion back to the Premier League. They only needed a point tonight against Preston, but they won an emphatic style 4-1 in the end and they're back in the top flight. Yes, they are. It was uh, less of a procession, more of a stagger across the line, I think, really. Um, not the greatest game I think you'll ever see. <clears throat> Eventually, the quality toll, but it was a pretty uh, bare-bones Preston side as well, which I think did kind of help things. Everything was in Newcastle's favour tonight, to be fair. You're talking there about how it wasn't the best game. Has there been a sense over the course of the season that maybe, you know, although Rafa Benitez hasn't maybe played the most beautiful football with this Newcastle team that he's got, maybe hasn't been able to, this is job done essentially. That's the most important thing, that Newcastle are going back to the to the Premier League. 
I'd have said until Fulham sort of picked up that they had played some of the best football in the league. Um, consistently, no, they haven't, obviously. And I think, look, he said himself, Benitez, afterwards, that winning it, promotion, whatever, goal was always promotion. And I think I'm inclined to agree with him on that because I think in the last five years, only one team that's come down has gone back up the next year. And <clears throat> and I think once you put that context on it, you realise that it really is a war of attrition, this league. It's, it's not an easy league to get out of. In a sense, is there any sort of disappointment in that, in all likelihood, the, the title itself has been surrendered almost to, to Brighton? A little bit. I mean, there's a strong degree of pessimism towards a few things that I see Newcastle fans talk about. One is the officiating in this league, which I have to confess, I think is dire. Like, really poor stuff. Big decisions constantly missed. And you could argue Newcastle found themselves on a number of bad calls in that sense. I would also say that a lot of teams have looked at Newcastle and said, right, we're going to set up two banks of four, four, five, one, whatever. We're going to defend first, attack second. I don't think Brighton have had that same thing to wrestle with. I think a lot of teams have come on to Brighton in the same way people did with Leicester last season and that's opened up spaces for their players to play in. Whereas I think Newcastle have had to be a little bit cannier, if you will, a little bit smarter and because of that it means they haven't dominated the league in the way you might expect. Who for you are the two or three maybe standout players this season for Newcastle who you'd expect to potentially be key players next season um, I wouldn't necessarily say the standout players will be key players next season Dwight Gale has been fantastic this season something ridiculous like 22 and 33 and you could argue but for a couple of niggling injuries he might have got closer to 30 um, Shelby's had his moments I think from a consistency basis Richie has to get Get a mention, so does Hayden. They've got futures. Clark actually has had some really important moments and probably been their best defender, which is a little bit of a tallest midget competition um, at times. But even still, I think those players that I've mentioned, they're the ones that have, have stood out and done something this season when Newcastle needed them to. Obviously, the question now is, uh, with Newcastle returning to the Premier League, is Mike Ashley going to put forward the investment that's perhaps needed in that playing squad in order to secure safety next season. Uh, do you think that is going to be uh, a likely scenario uh, from Newcastle's point of view? You hope so. You really hope so. Um, January wasn't the greatest confidence builder in, in that avenue because Benitez said he wanted one or two more players just to cement the position. I think Andros Townsend was was one he didn't get him um, and so fans sort of sided with Benitez and thought great this is actually being Ashley again um, he was very coy afterwards yes when he was asked about that he said you know what it's about enjoying tonight and we'll see what happens and he talked about you know we have to prepare in the right ways lots of very ambiguous I could be, I won't be, I might not be, I will be statements all depend on how you interpret them.
And I think for supporters, that will draw very clear battle lines because Mike Ashley, no matter what you think of him, has a very business-first approach. And I think at times, that's one of his greatest strengths and also one of his greatest failings because he doesn't look at things with common sense all the time. He looks at it with a balance sheet in mind. And the truth is, this is their second relegation promotion in less than 10 years. They can't afford to do it again. They that's, really can't. That's the thing. You wonder whether Newcastle will be safe next season, whether these tensions, again, between the board and manager might rear their head. I mean, overall, are you looking forward to next season with a, a sense of optimism? Rafa Benitez, of course, back in the Premier League, leading this team. How, what are your thoughts overall going into next season? Um, it's funny because there are some people, and I admit they're Sunderland fans, but I don't think that diminishes the validity of their opinion, that think Benitez is this very canny operator that draws the, the battle lines himself. And I kind of see that. You know, he has done that before where he pushes a wedge between himself and the ownership and demands that ambitions be met. And if not, then he's allowed to walk off as the saint and they're the sinner. Honestly, I like the guy. I do. I don't think he's perfect. Um, I think his ins insistence on playing a certain formation and players that maybe don't fit those roles is frustrating. His constant changes are a tad frustrating. But then I'm sure, as with any relationship, we've all got frustrations. But I also know that I, I never turn on the television and feel embarrassed that he's our manager. That's the thing. To put the fan cap on for a second, I look at him and I think, you know what, yeah, he, he, he genuinely cares. And I think, as, as depressing as that sounds, that's really what mattered most at the, at the minute. Mm. The, the thought of, of playing beautiful football and all this kind of stuff, that's great. And I appreciate it might sound vomit-inducing, but I looked at the way that the fans <clears throat> responded to him and he responded to them tonight and I thought, yeah, even if he even if he does, you know, play politics with the the higher ups, maybe that's needed a bit. Maybe maybe it's good to have someone who's not just gonna bend over and, and be happy they have a paycheck. We you know, this club now has a manager that I'm sure a lot of clubs would be very happy to take away from St James's Park. And he seems to see something in Newcastle and, and the club as an entity. And for that reason alone, you know, it's, it's hard not to just have that little hope spring through the, the soil. Uh, Chris, love your stuff. Uh, congratulations on promotion. And uh, we'll speak to you again on Thursday. I'll not be ready for Thursday, mate. I'm off on the hoi for three days. <laughs> the Newcastle brown <laughs> out is going uh, to be flowing tonight, eh? Me and Drew Geordie and uh, Anthony Decker hosting a party in the big market and I'm off there right now. All the big okay. names. Excuse me, mate. Mate. Mate, is this going to Durham? Magic. The man, the myth, the legend, Chris Hennage there. Very glad he caught his train to Durham. Right, guys, that brings an end to the Front Free podcast, the weekend review this week. Thank you so much for listening. Before we go, it is Player of the Week time day. The poll has been going on Twitter um, today. The people have had their say. Uh, three nominees this week for Player of the Week. It was Lionel Messi, Lionel Messi, or Lionel Messi. Unbelievably. Uh, with 46% of the votes, uh, Lionel Messi has won. 
Dave. Player of the Week, the coveted trophy. Lionel, get in touch, mate. We'll send you that box of Ferrero Rocher if you do. Just why, Dave, has this little-known player earned himself the Player of the Week? Well, I think he's scored his 500th career goal for Barcelona. He's now scored more La Liga goals in the Classico than any other player. This season in all competitions, he scored 47 goals in 46 games, registering 14 assists. But at the Classico, he was fantastic. Scored two goals, six shots, suffered six fouls, most of them coming from Casemiro, 11 dribbles, but more importantly, won 100% of his aerial duels. Fantastic. He's pretty good, this guy. He is pretty good. The greatest of all time. The GOAT, you might say. A lot of GOAT mm. emojis popping up on Twitter. Um, guys, as I said, thank you so much for listening. We are going to be back on Thursday with a Q&A. So many questions to get to. There's loads left over from last week. But if you've got any more, do send them in and we'll get to them on Thursday. Uh, we're going to try and tackle as many as we can. Until then, though, Lawrence McKenna, where can the good people find more of you? Uh, front three. Mm. Uh, the front three it's a great podcast uh dave o'brien where can people find you um on itunes the statman dave football podcast the daily podcast we had a lad from bangalore sending me a screenshot well he was on a plane to bangalore um of him listening to the podcast which is you know excellent so any more screenshots or funny things like that just send them over yeah, bloody play uh guys you can catch me on twitter at adam boltwood making horrible horrible predictions uh do remember to vote on that poll let us know what you Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. think should be the resolution to the infamous Zlatan bet. Void. Until Thursday, have a great week. We'll see you then.